Hey gang, Josh here. Welcome to a new installment of My Political Journey. This time my guest is DZ Rowan, one of the most original writers and memers that I've come across in the last few years. This episode is a tour de force glossary of young radical left subcultures online. We go through the full arc of the last few years, catch up to the present, and speculate on where to go next. From now on, I think I'm going to keep these intros short so we can give more speaking time to our guests. Let's dive right into the new episode. This is My Political Journey with DZ. For this interview, we're going to leave your age and your location more or less anonymous. We can just say that you're a Gen Z person living in the U.S., if that sounds fine. Mm -hmm. What social media platforms do you use? So I am on Instagram. uh, I'm on Discord. I am on Reddit. I don't really use it that much. I've had, like, God, at least, like, 12 accounts over the years. Instagram is kind of the main hub for me. And how would you describe your politics or ideology? Usually I just call myself a Marxist because it's easy and it's kind of, it's a little bit broad. If I want to be more specific, I guess post-Marxist is a bit more accurate to what I actually believe. But yeah, I don't really tend to go into the, like, hyper-specific. I mean, I am associated with, like, accelerationism and I am associated with communization. I tend to not call myself those things just because like when you say when you say I'm X, there's a lot of it's just kind of like opening a can of worms. And then I say, hey, I'm X. And then I have to go on and explain X. And I don't have the time to do that. So I just call myself like a Marxist or a post-Marxist. Who are some of your biggest influences? I think my biggest influence is just the work of the situationists particularly DeBoard. Deleuze is also a big influence on me, as I feel like everybody's aware. You know, obviously Marx. I think those are, if I had to pick three main ones, those would be the three. Can you tell me about the household that you were raised in? Are your folks liberal? Are they conservative? Apolitical? Somewhere in between? For the majority of my childhood, I was raised in a very conservative household. Over the years, I've had family members that have kind of become more liberal. You know, when I visit my family, it's not it's not anywhere near as conservative as it was. Although there are members of my family that are conservative. So, yeah. Um, and my my extended family is still very conservative because there was just a very heavy religious presence in my house. Growing up and, you know, even now. You and I have been in contact for a little while now. I interviewed you for the book last year. We also Mm -hmm. commissioned you to write an article for Rhizome in 2019. And this touched on Mm -hmm. topics of queer struggle, cyberspace, and cyber reality. The piece was actually an excerpt from a much larger text published on your blog, which we can plug here. DZ Rowan, R-O-W-A-N dot wordpress.com. I highly recommend checking out DZ's work. 
I'd like to talk about the full arc of your story of how you got into political ideas and discuss a little bit about where you are now. But maybe let's try and start at the beginning here. When did you first learn about or start visiting online political communities? I started getting involved online in 2015, 2016. And because of my upbringing, access to technology was kind of restricted. And also because of my class, we couldn't afford like Wi-Fi. We still can't afford Wi-Fi. My access to, to tech was always really restricted. And in 2015, 2016, I was able to finally afford a phone and um, was able to access, you know, have a data plan, right? I had had an interest in politics previously. I've always kind of had a, an interest in it. And especially because 2016 was a volatile year for a lot of people. And I kind of bought into all the hype. I got into politics more so than I had been into them previously. So I got on social media. And once you get on social media, it's pretty easy to find political spaces. You just kind of have to, you just kind of have to search for them, type in, you know, communism or something. <laughs> and you will find, you will find people. And once I started following people, it was, it didn't feel closed. It was very, it was very open in 2016. And so I was, you know, pretty quickly added to group chats and added to, yeah. So it, it was a pretty, it was a pretty easy process for me. What platforms did you start on, say, 2015-16? I imagine Discord probably comes later on. I was on Instagram. That was the first. It's kind of the best, <laughs> isn't it? I mean... <laughs> I think so. It's as good as it can be because, I mean, there's still, like, quite a bit of toxicity in the community, but it's nothing like Twitter. Twitter, Twitter is a nightmare. Twitter is hell. Let's say, just so I understand the path or the speed at which you move through these things, so you would start on Instagram in 2015 or 16, and then are you on Reddit simultaneously? I've been on Reddit on and off. My Reddit use isn't... Sometimes it's political, sometimes it's not. It depends on what account I'm using, and I mean, I've, I, I'm pretty sure I've lost the passwords for most of them. That's been on and off since maybe 2014. Okay, and you had mentioned in the opening that you had had up to 12 Reddit accounts. Is that for, for Reddit specifically, or is that across all the platforms? That's just for Reddit, because I forget my passwords, and I'm just like, I'll just make a new account. <laughs> Let's say where um, or what year would you have started using Discord? Does that come alongside Instagram in 2016, or does that come later? I want to say 2017, maybe 2018. How have your views changed since you started participating in these spaces? I imagine that you didn't log on in 2015 or 16 and describe your politics as a post-Marxist. So what did you come to social media with? What were your politics around that time? I was certainly not as, I don't know, I feel like calling myself radical feels a little 
maybe a little self-important, but I, I legitimately, like, was not as radical. Nobody's radical starting out. It requires right. a lot of studying, you know, and criticism in order to get to that point. I was a, basically a social democrat, and then I slowly, I you know, and then, you know, you go from social democrat, then you go, oh, democratic socialist, and then you go, um, <laughs> you know, whatever. I actually had a very, very brief and kind of half-hearted Marxist-Leninist phase. Very brief. And then I did a 180, and I started calling myself a syndicalist. And, I mean, I'm, like, I'm cringing so hard just thinking about, you know. But all, I, I became a syndicalist, and after a while of going through the whole, you know, syndicalism thing, it just it's just so funny to me that people are syndicalists in, like, the 21st century. Anyways, I then became a post-leftist, and that's that's the point where my connection with my past political opinions and just stages start. So I was a post-leftist. That was at the time when I was, like, beginning to write. Eventually, there are aspects of, of post-leftism as a whole and anarchism as a whole that I just couldn't. I, I could no longer get behind. And then I became a Marxist, and I was a, a left communist for a little bit. And then due to, I, I don't want to say necessarily disagreements, because I still agree with a great deal of left communism, but more so with just issues I had with the theory in terms of, like, relevance and in terms of application. So I had issues with that. I had issues with, because I became interested in other areas. And so I kind of, I stopped calling myself that. I, I don't call myself that anymore. And that has brought us to the present. I definitely am not calling myself left communist. I'm a Marxist, but not in, not really in the traditional sense. So. What you're saying makes a lot of sense to me, and I've followed that arc of politicization for a few people. But I think a lot of the audience may be unfamiliar with some of the terms that you're dropping. So I want to, let me just trace the arc here. Can we describe when you say post-left, people use that sometimes to mean different things. They might, a few people use it to say like, uh, oh, they lost faith with the left and now they're, they're a sternerist or they're an anarcho-primitivist, or some people will say post-left, and they really mean post-Marxist, that they're into Baudrillard. Um, so for you, what does the term post-left encompass? What are the influences attached to that? People in the post-left don't necessarily like being called post-left anarchists. They don't like the term anarchism to apply to the post-left. They like saying post-left anarchy, and I, I just, to me, it's just semantics, but I, I don't know, to them it's meaningful. So it's a um, kind of broad umbrella term for tendencies within anarchism that, that kind of diverge away from social anarchism. And social anarchism 
for anybody who doesn't know, is the more classic anarchism, Kropotkin, right? And cynicalism is also considered a part of social anarchism. So the post-left anarchists are basically critiquing the social anarchist school. And it's not a really uh, unified tendency. There's a lot of different tendencies within the post-left. Some post-left anarchists call themselves anarcho-primitivists. Some of them are mutualists. Some of them call themselves insurrectionists. You have the egoists, you have the nihilists, you know, very edgy. <laughs> so like there, there are just a lot of, yeah, a lot of these um, different, you know, schools of thought there. And some of them don't really subscribe to one in particular. Some just say they're post-left. But basically, there are issues with the social anarchists and with the left in general is kind of a distrust of society and civilization as a whole. So there's kind of a, according to them, leftism tries to really create a different society. They want to destroy society as we know it. They either want to do that as a process. Um, Some don't necessarily believe in a kind of state of being that is outside of society. Some just see it as a continuous process of of criticism or of, of revolt. Others see kind of a an anarchy that is somehow outside of society as we know it. So that's kind of the the basic gist of it that tends to be universal for um, the post-left. There are, of course, uh, a lot of differences in tactics as well. So they tend to be very critical of unions and like union-based struggle. There's, there's kind of a rejection of revolution in, in favor of insurrection. I think part of what makes post-left an appealing label for people is that it's very generative and it can include a lot of these different things. It's difficult mm-hmm. to have a effective operating shorthand, but I think it's something, if there is one, it's something like the left is what allows capitalism to maintain itself where otherwise capitalism would self-destruct. If I can throw something, um, you know, we'll we'll dial up the heat a little bit uh, and throw in some of the more uh, interesting, uh, unusual characters here. I wanted to ask about unconditional accelerationism. I wanted to ask about Nick Land and how he folds into some of these more unusual post-left ideas. Where does he play into this? Does he Um, play into this? In my time within post-left circles, there was mention of accelerationism. It's definitely not as big as, say, anarcho-primitivism. In terms of the post-left, accelerationism has kind of come and gone already, in online spaces at least. I mean, it will probably come back into popularity eventually, but basically, when I was in the post-left, it was already kind of on its way out, and Primitivism was becoming more popular within the post-left. 
I think the reason for that is that accelerationism isn't an anarchist idea. In terms of my opinions on the subject, on Nick Land, on accelerationism, and when I say accelerationism, I'm referring to uh, unconditional, because that's typically what people mean when they say that, and that's what Nick Land meant when he first coined the term. So that's what I'm going to go by. Because it ends up being very clunky and difficult to kind of go through if you put all the, the different ones. Um, but in terms of land, I think... I think that the popular opinion, old land good, new land bad, that still kind of holds up. He's, you know, I mean, you know, all theorists change over time. The thing to remember about Nick Land is that he has, he's been addicted, he struggled with addiction, and that has influenced his theory to a degree. And so the kind of, like, chaotic persona that he has is not entirely just him being that type of person. It's also what he has dealt with in his life. So I think people need to kind of keep that in mind when they talk about him. But uh, early Land is interesting. And his contributions to Deleuze are very interesting to me. And unconditional accelerationism for me is something that people who know what it is will see it in my work, especially in my, my, my later work, is where I'm consciously putting it in. I don't tend to use the word. And the reason I don't like to use the word is because it's kind of become a little bit, become a little pop political. Yeah, like it's kind of become like a, I want to say like maybe like edgy term that people will throw around to refer to anything that's like supposed to be subversive and, and out of the box, you know, like any anything that people are like, oh, this is going to be like really, you know, radical and, and cool, you know, people like to throw that term around. And to me, it's, it's ha it has a reputation that I don't want to continue and I don't want to, I don't want it to, to affect me. Mm, um, sure. I do consider myself an accelerationist because I acknowledge the process. I wouldn't necessarily call it my primary label because it's not supposed to be a primary label. It's just an acknowledgement of a process. So in my latest work, I do incorporate it and I do describe it, and I will not mention it, <laughs> just because of the kind of reputation and the, the culture around it. I just don't want to be involved with that. That seems to be uh, almost an occupational hazard of being part of political yeah. subcultures on the internet is that sometimes these terms accumulate uh, very negative baggage very quickly, which is hard to shed 
or requires oh, yeah. significant rebranding at the very least. Yeah, yeah. So I, I mm-hmm. empathize uh, with you for sure. Um, so allow me to summarize this to make sure that I'm on the same page. But your journey begins somewhere around 2015 or 16, where you first get your own smartphone. You enter into Instagram. You had been on Reddit previous, but your online time spikes way up once you have your own data plan. And you are probably social democrat leaning, transition to democratic socialism. You briefly identify as an ML for a very brief period. You get interested in anarcho-syndicalism. Shortly after that, you make your way into the post-left, which encapsulates a lot of disparate ideas from accelerationism to egoism and Max Stirner, civ critique, anti-civ or anprim. Around this time, I don't think you said this explicitly, but I've inferred that this included your leap to Discord or somewhere in surveying these various communities and um, political groups, uh, there was a platform leap involved. Um, More recently, you were briefly a left com. You now identify as a Marxist for convenience. You try to not associate yourself with the term unconditional accelerationism because it's just been bastardized and used way too much on the internet to mean way too many different things. Does that sound yeah. roughly accurate? Roughly. I will say, though, just for reference, I would be cautious of saying that the post-left encapsulates accelerationism. Maybe, maybe you can get away with saying it's encapsulated in post-Marxism. But I would just be cautious with that because it is so... I I would just kind of uh, describe it on its own. Yeah, I mean, maybe if I can quote a meme here for a second, which is, um, you know, maybe not the most scholarly source for this, but um, I think the way that these things are understood in the kind of early political internet corners of social media and whatnot is that the spectrum is not left versus right, but the spectrum is... Ted Kaczynski to Nick Land. And so accelerationism (laughs) is not necessarily contained within the umbrella of post-left, but perhaps they represent two different poles of that there's this process and it goes in one direction and uh, maybe you can try to tug it back or bankrupt it or um, allow it to self-destruct, but... Um, yeah, but then we the, the terminology and the slippage here and then the the lore and the mythology all starts to come in. And um, yeah, it starts to feel mm-hmm. much more like MMORPG <laughs> rather than uh, a political debate and, and everything. Um, yeah. Let's, let's shift gears for a second here. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your media consumption, if I can. Do you spend any time on YouTube? I don't watch political YouTube as much. I watch it. I still watch it sometimes, but I don't. I don't watch it as much as I used to, or as much as maybe people would expect, because uh, most of it kind of annoys me. What do you find yourself watching when you're on YouTube? Do you have specific content producers that you follow? Do you search for, say, the various lectures of a specific writer, or what do you spend your time watching? I know Cook Philosophy is going by uh, a he's going by a, a different name right now because he he kind of acknowledges that the whole Cuck thing is kind of an old name and he wants to kind of distance himself from that. 
I've found many of his videos to be good. And I watched a little bit of Then and Now a, a long time ago, and I don't really remember In terms of lecturers, some of Todd Mays, he's a Deleuze scholar, he's fairly well known. I remember enjoying his lectures on difference and repetition a lot. I enjoyed those. Those were very informative. But in terms of politics, I mostly get my politics from books and from discussion on online within the spaces that I occupy. And for your online spaces, are the best conversations being had in Discord? Are they being had in Instagram group chats? Or what's your your close circle now? I think the Instagram group chats are probably better yeah. for discussion. For me, at least, I mostly use Discord just to do voice calls with people. I don't chat in Discord as much. I find that I, I only have so much time to interact in so many on so many platforms so i tend to stay in instagram group chats for discussion how about podcasts do you listen to podcasts no i no one I under have, the age of 25 listens to po- <laughs> no one i kind of I kind every of interview that. yeah yeah i'm too early in my 20s to to listen to podcasts i think watched or i've listened to some of the the working class history podcast i've 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 listened to that on occasion i remember listening to the one about the stonewall riots and that was very informative oh yeah the acid horizon theory podcast is uh, that's kind of interesting i haven't listened to it in a while though Let's say for an example, there's an event that happens in the news, something happens somewhere in the world, and you want to get the full story. What's your first instinct? Uh, do you have specific media outlets or magazines or journalists that you check? I tend to go to Al Jazeera, and then I, I tend to go to The Intercept. And those are the two that I consider the most reputable. Let's switch gears again. I wanted to ask just a few questions about your life outside of politics. What kind of hobbies do you have? Are you into music? Do you play video games? Um, what do you do for fun? I am into music. Uh, I am I'm definitely into music. And um, video games, I don't... I, I, I have played video games and I have had fun playing video games. But uh, at the moment, I'm not playing any video games right now. I actually, I, I'm into art. I draw, I paint. I've been doing, I've been drawing for my entire life because uh, I was bored in school. I'm trying to start making music. For one thing, I am a broke college student and I don't really have money to be investing in all of these like really you know nice tools and nice software Um, it's expensive yeah yeah so i that's kind of been something that's i'm gonna i'm gonna work on um over the years but most of my outside hobbies are music 
and art and well just socializing with people because I I do have friends <laughs> outside of all of this so yeah let me ask on that question um one of the things that I try to squeeze into these interviews, we don't always get to it, but of your IRL friends, I find with most people, there's the URL friends who are into equally niche, super theory, political meme culture. And then mm-hmm. there's the IRL friends, which are maybe people you grew up with, people you, you live nearby, friends from high school, college, things like that. Are your IRL friends into the URL stuff or is there... A division there's a little bit of a, di- of a division but not as much um i have a lot of my friends irl they are leftists they are communists marxists anarchists so you know you know and some of them i can talk about the url stuff with a little bit more and others not so much they're not as into the political stuff so there's a division but it's not as much i certainly can't talk about the ins and outs of deleuze with any of my irl friends so there are certain like the really theoretical stuff tends to be just on url um let me steer us back into the political questions for uh a minute here and then this will be our last section as we wrap up did you vote in 2020 no you probably know the answer i didn't think so (laughs) yeah no yeah but it's just it just really really irritated me how just just sacrosanct we treat voting you know and just how it's it's just it's just treated so as this it's treated religiously frankly and it's just people aren't willing to actually look at it and evaluate it as a system and evaluate it as it relates to radical politics i don't have a problem with people voting in and of itself i have a problem with people who are Marxists rallying behind not even a local candidate, but a presidential candidate. The, the guy who actually, rallying around the guy who, who actually calls the drone strikes, you know, like, I, I don't understand how it makes sense for a communist to support a capitalist politician, A, and B, I don't understand why we need to make it into like a, uh, we need to make it into a tactic. We need to treat it like it's a tactic, just like any other form of praxis. It's not, it's not a, it's not a form of praxis because what type of theory are people putting into practice by voting? There's no theory that's being put into praxis. That's what praxis is. It's, it's an action towards what we want to create and against what we do not like. It's not praxis. It's not a tactic. It's not like, you know, you're not like, you're not doing a communist action by voting for Biden. I don't, I don't really care if somebody wants to, if somebody votes for Biden because, you know, they think Biden will help them, you know, in the short term. I just don't, it's just, it's not a form of praxis. It's not a tactic. On this topic of 
shadow banning of deplatforming in general. What do you mm-hmm. think about banning Trump from Twitter? I think it's funny. It is funny. Honestly, I think it's funny. Um, I that's like my, that's my primary opinion on the topic. But um, honestly, I I can't. And this is just goes into banning in general. My opinions on banning in general. I think that we need to keep in mind that we do need these platforms at the for the time being, and we do rely on them and so i think that and it's difficult because like how how are you going to ask a company who is against definition how are you going to ask them to preserve our ability to have discourse and our ability to radicalize and act you know like how how are you gonna ask them? Hey, like hey hey, Twitter, hey YouTube, hey Instagram, could you could you not? It, it's just kind of funny and strange to me. I do think though that banning, and we need to be careful about this because banning banning right wingers can sometimes sometimes the same principles or the the same uh, reasoning that would bring uh, a platform to ban a right-winger can also be used to ban a leftist, and it is being used to do that. And so even though, like, even though it's really funny to see, like, you know, people like Trump and, and, and people even farther, you know, right than him being banned, you know, even though it's funny to see that, we need to keep in mind that these are often basically the center left liberals and like i'm i'm just going to say this like outright and i'm sorry if it sounds like i'm sorry if it sounds you know right wing or something but a lot of these companies they do have liberals in positions of power within the companies and they definitely are putting out this image out there of them being like liberal and so basically we have this phenomenon where liberals are using not only their own issues and our legitimate issues with the right against us, which is really scummy and really at the same time kind of interesting. But like they're using our they're they're using the backlash against and I will say the legitimate backlash, it's not just, you know, we're not just overreacting. Like, there is a reason to uh, take issue with some of these people and some of these ideas that are being spread. And it's using that to end up censoring us. So we do need to be careful. I would just say we need to get better at hiding certain things and be smarter and understand what could get us banned and try to find ways around that. I feel like just to echo your, your, your contentious point that I completely agree with actually that um, for a long while we watched a very asymmetrical application of the terms of service, meaning that right-wingers would be deplatformed for X, Y, and Z, and left-wingers were given a pass because their political speech was allowed to 
recuperate the image of uh, a woke capital. And mm -hmm. now the other shoe is dropping, where just this week, now left-wing free speech is a political threat. And we're seeing all of mm -hmm. these groups being taken off of social media. So we can't say that we didn't warn them, but... Um, we are where we are, and we just have to do, I think, pretty much what you're describing, find these opportunities for, you know, dark forest communities and um, and to grow and not be surveilled by the platforms um, uh, and find a way to, you know, camp out. I think right now, though, the main, the main theme maybe that radicals need to take right now is kind of a more covert approach to things an approach that's more about creating our own kind of our own language or our own our own um kind of shared knowledge and and you know this kind of contextual knowledge in order to avoid detection because right now i think avoiding detection is actually the most important thing for us to do because the loud and and proud and 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 out there and and unapologetic you know mass you know megaphone type of praxis and and type of um discourse it's just not gonna work it's not gonna work anymore it's not working right now for us because it just keeps getting recuperated right now and i mean you know people maybe you know people might say like oh you know you're not taking you know the real world into account enough you know it's you know there's too much you know you're, you're getting this more so from the appearance of things on the internet maybe it's not really that bad no it is that bad i mean we saw what happened with blm for example and the internet i mean i i know it's like sounds cliche but like that online discourse and online radicalization in certain ways that is that is the future of of discourse and of praxis even to a degree because it's only going to become we're only going to become a more online world there isn't any signs of it stopping and there isn't there aren't signs of it ever reaching a point where it doesn't continue to encompass so much of our of our lives so i think people really right now we need to be putting some more focus on how we interact online how can we use the internet to direct or influence praxis that occurs in the real world i think it's definitely time to pay more attention to the internet <laughs>